Open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, that's perfectly fine. We have extras under the, the chairs in the center aisle. We'll be reading from the ESV version today. And listen, this morning, if, if you haven't read the Bible in a while, or maybe you've never read the Bible, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been to church, whatever the case may be, this is, this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning. None of us have arrived. This is, this is a place where we can really come together and understand. We're all seeking to learn how to understand, how to apply, how to live by what we encounter here in God's Word. So the book of Ephesians, we're about four-fifths of the way through uh, the Bible, if you're looking for that book, will be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, verses 17 through 24. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Efesios, capítulo 4, versículos 17 a 24. As you know, and as you've heard, the first three chapters of Ephesians are indicatives meaning they tell you something true. They have propositional truth within them. Paul says this is what is true. The next three chapters are imperatives, meaning they are commands, instructions for how to then live in light of what is true. First three chapters detail what God has done. And what he has done is that he's chosen a people and he has raised those people to new life in Christ. And he's not only raised them to, li to life, he has united them to one another in Christ and united them to God. And then we turn from the first three chapters to the last three chapters. And, and having been made alive and, and having been unified, right at the hinge in chapter 4, verse 1, look down at it, Paul says, now, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And the passage before us today begins to tether that out. It says, on a day-to-day -day basis, asks this question, on a day-to-day -day basis, how should we approach walking in a manner worthy of our calling? What does it look like for me to take an active role in walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? Now, in short, the answer to that is by actively putting off the old self and actively putting on the new self that has been formed in you in Jesus. So with that, open up to Ephesians 4. And begin reading with me in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is, this is God's word. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us without instruction. Thank you for not saying, now walk in a manner worthy and not leaving us to that. Thank you for, for illustrating and helping, our, helping to accommodate our, our weak and feeble minds to understand what it means to daily follow hard after you by grace through faith. Help us to, to further understand and help us to courageously commit to doing what you've called us to do here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So on a day-to-day basis, how should I approach walking in a manner worthy of what Jesus has called me to? You know, when God, through the New Testament writers, commands righteous living and forbids sinful living, it's not just do this and don't do that. And that's actually, that's God's grace to us, that he doesn't just give cold commands, as if the Christian life were just a matter of the will. One of the most common forms of imagery, on the other hand, is this idea of putting off and putting on. And all the New Testament authors actually use this imagery. Uh, Paul uses it in Romans 13, 12. He uses it also in Colossians 3, 9. The author of Hebrews, whoever the author is, uh, uses it in Hebrews 12, 1. James uses it in James 1, 21. Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2, 1. All, all of them using this imagery of putting on putting on something and putting off something else that should not be. And what God is doing by using this imagery is he's connecting what we do with who we are. He's connecting what we do with who we are. Daily walking in a manner worthy of our calling, it means purposeful behavior that matches our identity. It means purposeful speech that matches our identity. It means purposeful thought that matches our identity. Not just, you should do this. You should not do that. And this passage, look down there with me, it crescendos at the very end of this passage in verse 24 when Paul says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul is looking at us in the eyes. And he's saying, put on the new self that Jesus has created in you. Put on the you that Jesus has created you to be. And that's the positive statement. But don't don't miss this. There's also a negative side of it. Look at verse 22, a couple verses earlier. He says, put off... Your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Don't just put on the new you that was made alive in Christ, but put off the old you that was dead in sin. In other words, 
new life in Christ should not look like your old life apart from Christ. In Christmas of 2017, I was, I was working at Olive Crest, which is a, a foster and adoptions agency here in Santa Ana. And one of our donors, a, a major grocery store chain, they decided they wanted to provide Christmas for, for uh, a, a kinship family who was struggling, a family who had very few means, uh, grandma and grandpa who had like eight grandchildren whom they had taken primary custody of barely making ends meet. And so this grocery store company wanted to provide Christmas for them. So on an evening, a few days just before Christmas, staff from the grocery chain surprised this family. And not just with Christmas presents, they provided this family with an entirely new apartment. So they showed up, and they've got Christmas presents, but they've also got new beds, new mattresses, new wardrobes for every person in the family, new furniture for the apartment, everything. And they get there, and the kids are there, and it's pandemonium. There are tears of joy, and there's laughter, and there are kids yelling, going, oh my goodness, look what I got, mom, you know, running around. And I'm standing there, and a couple of us look over to the side, and and there's one little boy, one of the kids, and he's sitting on a bench in this courtyard, all alone. And it was such a moving picture because he's sitting there and he has this brand new white pillow and he's just gripping it. He's not crying, but he has this soft, contented smile on his face. He's got all these new toys over here that his siblings are playing with, but he's sitting there on the bench just holding this pillow, this brand new, still in his plastic wrap pillow. And so one of the grocery store staff walks over to him and I walked over with him and and the guy kneels down next to him and says, hey, buddy, can you tell me about this pillow? And the little boy looks at him, I'll never forget this, and he said, I've never had a pillow before. And the man looked at him and he said, can you tell me what you've slept on at night? And he said, well, we've always just used grocery store bags with our dirty clothes in them and put our heads on them. Friends. Here's the point. That pillow, that, that little boy had become precious. And when you receive new life in Christ, the kind of new life that you had never had before in your entire existence, you remember that moment when you just gripped it. You said, yes, I've never had this before. This is the most precious thing that I've ever had. point Paul is making is keep your grip on that pillow. Put on that new wardrobe. All those old dirty clothes, those tatters, all that, all that old patchy furniture that you were sitting on and making do with, that, that grocery bag with dirty clothes that you were laying your head on at night, put that away. Put on this new life you have in Christ. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Though Jesus has put a new living self on you and he has put the dead in sin self away, we still live in a world marred by sin as we await his return when he will restore all things and make things new. In other words, 
in the midst of your completely newly furnished apartment, you still have the old clothes laying around. Still have that grocery bag with the dirty clothes laying inside of it. So here's Paul's instructions. He says, put off and put on. So that's our two points for today, very simply. First point, put off. Second point, put on. Let's talk about put off. And before we do, let's reread verses 17 through 19. I want you to, to grasp this with you. Paul says, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer, feel the force in this, that you, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the heart, their hardness of heart. Ah, they've become callous. And as a result, have given themselves up to sensuality, greeting to practice every kind of impurity. Notice the word Paul uses there at the very front of the passage. You must no longer what? Walk. Remember the first time you heard that word, which was back in chapter 4, verse 1. At the turn from chapter 3 to chapter 4, Paul says, now walk in a manner worthy. And now he's saying, do not walk. Do not walk how? Well, he says, as the Gentiles do. But back in chapter 2, he says, Jew and Gentiles now come together in the church in this one blessed, beautiful unity. He's not saying that all of a sudden the the Gentiles are are once again unholy. He's saying, no, no. That word for Gentiles, it's, it's... in the Greek, it can also mean nations and peoples. He's saying the unbelieving world. Don't walk like the unbelieving world who's, who's not following Christ. Don't walk like they walk. Don't walk as they do. And listen, you used to be a part of that world. The people he's writing to used to be a part of that world. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This was once you. So don't take a high and mighty, self-righteous stance. This was once you. But at the same time, in case we have forgotten how futile that life was, Paul reminds us that that way of life leads to a life that is darkened in their understanding, he says. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They're hard words. He's talking about a people who have sought truth apart from and outside of the one true God. And as a result of seeking truth outside of and apart from Him, they become alienated to the life of God. And we've seen that word before, right? Chapter 2, verse 12. Alienated from God. And Paul's saying that's that's where this comes from. But but even that that darkness in understanding, that darkness in understanding of truth comes from someplace else. It's, it's derivative of another condition, and he says it's as a result of their hardness of heart. Listen, every time that a person chooses the way of sin and death over the way of God, they feel less bad about it. You ever have that experience? Every, time, every successive time that you choose the, the way of sin and death 
But you give in to temptation with every successive denial. You feel less and less bad about it. And notice how Paul describes that hardness of heart. He says they've become callous, unfeeling, insensitive to God. And listen, here's, here's the point. A heart that is insensitive to God's law becomes insensitive to his love. A heart that, that's callous, that, that it's lost its feeling for God. Paul's saying that. That's what this condition is. And it results in, this is, this is the outcome. Look at verse 19. It results in giving themselves up. They have given themselves up. And this is, this is very similar to Romans 1. You hear rec- echoes of Romans 1 all over in this passage. And if you're going, what do you mean by that? Well, just go and read Romans 1 this week. He's saying, you become callous toward God, darkened in your understanding, pursuing truth outside of and apart from Him. You begin to give yourself up to sensuality. What's, what he's talking about here is immorality that, that inevitably follows hardness of heart. It, it's a life that is a betrayal of your true self. Think about how Paul is wording that. They have given themselves up. Their true selves, which are created in the image of God, right? Genesis 1 and 2 says that that man and woman were created in God's image. He created them. The one creature in all of creation that bears God's image. As the heart hardens, becomes callous, darkened in understanding, that image begins to become distorted. As you give in to living apart from God's will. Finally, greedy. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One commentator defines greed as the desire for more than is one's due. That's a helpful definition there. It's a desire for, for more than your due. And last week, we, we heard very helpfully that God has given those that he, he has saved these incredible gifts of grace, Right? But even beyond that, there's God's common grace that he's given to every person in all of creation. He's given the gifts of money for provision. He's given the gift of sex within the context of marriage. He's given the gift of of food and drink. He's given the gift of babies to give birth to and to raise and to children who were raised up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All these different gifts. But what Paul's talking about, he said, He's saying, the unbelieving mind takes these gifts and says, hey, thanks God, but I want more. Hey, thanks God for the money to provide for my family, but I want more. And I'm going to chase after that. Hey, thanks God for the, the gift of sexuality, but I want more and I want different. Hey God, thanks for the gift of babies, but actually I don't want that gift because I want more of this other gift, so I'm going to terminate that gift. Hey, thanks God for the gift of food and drink. I want a lot more leads to overindulgence, greed, for more than one is due. Now, again, just like in, in 
chapter 2, this is a tough description of the life apart from, from God. And commentator Francis Folks, he very helpfully says, it's not implied that all that is said in this section is true equally of all who are not Christians. You have to be careful to understand that. But it is not unfair to say that this is the direction in which every life is facing which is out of touch with God. That's what Paul's saying. That's the direction that you're facing when you're not facing toward God in Christ. But here's what may be surprising to you. And, and we, should be, we should be affected by this. Paul isn't saying, yeah, they're a bunch of sinners, but you guys, you're good. Don't worry about it. You're, you're fine. Don't worry about you. He's, he's saying, no, no longer walk that way. No longer walk that way. And the fact that Paul commands those who have been made alive in Christ to no longer walk as you once walked suggests, and get this, that it is very possible for Christians to walk contrary to their new life. It is very possible for Christians to walk contrary to their new life. And, and that's a sobering reality that we need to actually come to terms with. Because being a Christian does not mean that you are automatically morally superior to non-Christians. If this room is full of Christians, it does not mean that we are automatically morally superior in our behavior and our thoughts and our speech to non-Christians. What it does mean, well, it, 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 it doesn't mean that, that non-Christians haven't put off their hard hearts and, and that you completely have. Jesus has given you a new heart, but that doesn't mean that you're not prone to hardening it again, allowing it to become callous. What it does mean is that non-Christians lack the ability to put off their hard hearts and you have the ability, but you've still got to do it. Just the fact that Jesus has now given you the ability to do it doesn't absolve you of, of, of responsibility to actually walk out what has been done in you. To walk out, to live out the new life that has been achieved in you. This is what Paul says in Philippians. He says, he says live out, live out the gracious work that God has achieved in you. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. But he doesn't just leave us at the cold command. Look at verse 20. Read verses 20 and 21 with me. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, the, the Greek grammatical construction is pretty wonky here, but, but here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you, you learned about Christ, the one that you believed in initially. You learned about him as the one in whom all truth dwells. That's what he's saying here. He's saying Jesus is the embodiment of what is true. And so since he is truth, you were taught to put off your old self. 
what he's saying. He, that, that's not the way you learn Christ. You didn't learn Christ as though he's just, just some, some figment of your imagination so you can go back and continue living the way you once did. He says, no, you learn Christ as, as the truth. And, and notice how deep the Christian's motivation is to not walk in our old man, manner of life. Notice this. On one level, we no longer walk in our old manner of life because it's no longer who we are. And that's important. We're living out of our identity. But it's even deeper than that. Because who we are is defined by the one who is entirely and utterly true. And that's important. And that's really, really important. Because sometimes you don't even want to live out of who you are. And your mind changes and you're all over the place, but who Jesus is never changes. He's always the same. Always true, always faithful. And the work that he achieved in you is always real. And that's why Paul says, that's not the way you learn Jesus. You learn him as the one who's true and in whom all truth dwells. And, and not only that, but apart from Christ, according to verse 18, we, we walk in darkness. But knowledge of Jesus, according to Ephesians 5.8, if you go forward just, just a few verses, knowledge of Jesus is exposure to his light. We've become children of light because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is light. 1 John 1.5 says as much. And the Bible uses this, this contrast of light and darkness as the contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness, as the contrast between truth and error. And he's saying, hey, you learned, you learned Jesus as the truth is in him. You, you were exposed to light. So if you're going to, if you're going to live in darkness, you have no excuse but that you've chosen to. You can't claim ignorance because you live in the light of his truth now. And so commentator, commentator Mark Masson says that Jesus' life, his teaching, and his cross forever exclude the union of faith and immorality. Because Jesus is true for the Christian, there is never any appropriate union of faith and immorality. The truth of Jesus is our deepest motivation for right and moral living our deepest motivation. Who Jesus is. It's another affirmation of look to Christ for your motivation, for the grounds, for your example. Look to Christ. Now this is, for, for a number of reasons, this is so, so important. But one reason I want you to really pay attention to is the, the desire to put the old self back on Verse, verse 22, look at the, the, the very end of verse 22. The desire to put the old self back on is filled with deceitful desires. That old self is corrupt. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. So that desire to, to put the old self back on, it's a deceitful desire. You know what that means? It means the old self is filled with lies. 
Why is this important? Because strangely, we sometimes want to put the old self back on, don't we? We, we, we want to lay our heads back down on that grocery bag filled with dirty clothes instead of laying on our brand new pillow. We want to put back on the tatters of clothing rather than putting on the new wardrobe. Why does the old man have any appeal anymore to any of us? Because of deceit. Because the old man is filled with lies. Promises of life. Promises of good. Promises of satisfaction. But they're all empty. Why? And so we go, why? You're promising. Might as well try. Put you, put you back on for today. Who knows? I could really benefit from it. Paul says, it's still corrupt. Corrupt by deceitful desires. The old man seems to promise more than Jesus offers. But the desires of the old man, they are deceitful desires. They're empty lies. That's why it's so critical that our motivation is grounded in how we learned Christ as the truth is in him. So with force, Paul says in verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your old manner of life. And this doesn't mean, he's not saying, wash your dirty clothes. He's not saying, put your dirty clothes on and walk around with a Tide pen and just kind of try to, you know, scrub out the stains as you're living your life. He's saying, no, put it off. And you know, he's also not just saying, take off the shirt. He's saying, put it away. He's saying, get rid of it. Put it out. Be done with it. Put it off. So let me ask you this. What old way of living do you need to put off entirely? Or, or maybe, what is that one way of living that you're still wearing, but you're, you're kind of walking around with a Tide pen trying to sort of stamp Christianity on it. Give it a little Christian flair as it's an entirely sinful way of living and related to the old man. What is that for you? Whatever that is, encouragement is to put it off. But don't stop there. Don't stop with putting it off in its place, put something else on. And that's our second point. Very simply, put on. With that, read verses, verses 23 and 24. Jesus, or Paul has said, that's not the way you learn Christ, as the truth is in him, to put off the old man and, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As the truth is in Christ, you were taught in him to put off the old self and to put on the new self. But hold the phone! There's another commandment in between those two. Did you notice that? There's another positive command here before to put on the new self. The command to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So there's one negative command to put off the old self, but then two positive commands. And, and one scholar 
and, and I think he's right here, he says that these two things, these two things are required for the positive formation of the Christian character. The continuous and progressive renewal of our highest faculty and the decisive acceptance of the new man. To bring that into modern language, he's saying, after repentance and faith, which is the the fundamental, most foundational requirement for following Christ, in terms of what the Christian is responsible for doing, renewing your mind by the Spirit and putting on the new self are the fundamental imperatives for positive Christian and, and I don't think that I'm making too big of a claim there. Because like I said, th- this, this paradigm of putting off and putting on, this is, this is consistent through all of the New Testament authors. This is kind of the, the, the big picture paradigm for, for your pursuit of holiness. Your pursuit of holiness isn't just do, this, do these good things. It's put on the new self that you have become in Christ. And renew your minds by the Spirit. So two, two positive commands. I want to just take these one by one. And we'll, we'll, hit these, we'll hit these fairly briefly. But these are important. If you're asking the question, well, how do I grow as a Christian? Here's where you start. One, be renewed in spirit of your minds. And this is, this is reflective of where Paul has said almost the same thing in another place. He said in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But one thing to notice here in Ephesians is that he says, be renewed by the spirit of your mind. The Holy Spirit who indwells you, he indwells your whole person. Your body and your mind, your soul, that immaterial part of you, he indwells it all. And we, we read Paul praying for spiritual strength for those who have been made alive in Christ and united to God and united to one another. He prays for the Holy Spirit to fill them and to give them strength. And here Paul is saying, hey, now you, by that same Holy Spirit who indwells you, by that power, be renewed in your mind. So very helpful. He's not saying, he's not saying just, just go, renew your, go renew your own mind. You can't do it. I can't do it. You and I have no ability to to renew anything of ourselves, but the Holy Spirit does, and he lives in you. And he says, depend on him. Renew your mind. That word renew, it means to make young again. It's a helpful image there. Make your mind young again. In contrast, to what we read in verses 18 and 19, a mind and a heart that has become dark, ignorant, calloused, hard, unfeeling toward God, joyless. He's saying, renew your mind. Renew it. Now, how does one renew your mind by the Spirit? Well, there are actually a lot of ways we could tether this out, but I want to just key in on one, and it's a very important one in the context of what we've already been talking about. Remember what what we said about hardness of heart and callousness earlier, that every successive time you ignore your conscience, your heart becomes 
harder and harder and harder. You become more and more unfeeling toward God. What do you think happens with every successive time that you listen to your conscience and you respond to the Holy Spirit's urging within you? The opposite. Your mind, your heart becomes softer. It's almost like they're renewing, becoming young again, shedding that decrepit old hardness that used to characterize it. And there is a very real sense in which you find in the New Testament that, that when, when you ignore your conscience, it says your conscience becomes seared. But you respond to the Spirit and you begin to walk by the Spirit and you begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And your heart desires the things of God. That's what he's talking about by renewing the mind is, is following the Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit. And when he urges your conscience to listen to it, when your conscience is telling you, you shouldn't do this, listen to it. When the Holy Spirit is, is impressing upon your conscience, this is a good and right thing to do, do it. Martin Luther famously said, it is neither right nor safe to go, to go against one's conscience. And he's absolutely true. But it is so right and so safe Follow one's conscience, even when the, the world and your flesh are telling you otherwise. In fact, it'll, it'll lead to the renewing of who you are. So that's, that's the first thing. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Second one, put on the new self. This is the crux of, of, this, of this sermon, the crux of this passage. Put on the new self. And here we are about two minutes from the end of this sermon, and we're finally getting here. It's okay. I'll tell you why that's okay in just a, a minute. But listen, the new self, it's not, just, it's not just forever alive. But it has, look down at verse 24, it's been created, <laughs> it's been created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. Do you know what this is, friends? you know what this is? This is the restoration of the image of God in you. What sin has distorted, Jesus has restored by grace through his death and resurrection. That's the new life he's raised up in you. It's a new life that once again reflects the beautiful image of God in you. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that that new life was created in the image and likeness of God. And D.A. Carson says that the power of God in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is now being displayed again in a new creation. A new creation that is every bit as real as the first creation. That's what Jesus has done in you when he raised you to new life. Those who are being baptized today, that's what's being imaged today. That the new creation in Christ that's just as significant as the original creation has happened in someone's heart. What sin distorted, Jesus restored. And so, so Jesus, has, he's remodeled the whole apartment of your life. The whole thing. Top quality designer furniture, the, the best new wardrobe you could possibly imagine. And not just a new pillow, but one of those really expensive memory foam pillows, you know, that's super comfortable. That's what he's given you. Now he's saying, wear those clothes. Sleep on that pillow. 
sit on that furniture. And doesn't this seem like a silly command? (laughs) If what Jesus, in whom is all truth, has really done something so good in us as to make us forever alive in him, why would we need to be told to continually put this new life on? Such is the deceitfulness of sin. That's how powerfully deceitful sin is. Friends, this command to put off and put on, it's not a one-time activity. Jesus did the one-time thing. Now, it's a daily, continual, ongoing imperative for each and every one of us. Not that, not that by doing so, we're saving ourselves again. No, no, we're, we're secure in Christ. That's not going away. But we're now commanded to live out of what he has done. And listen, before Christ, we, we worked hard. And you remember, we worked hard to feed our selfish desires. We thought about what will make me happy, what will satisfy me, what is going to be best for me. And we worked hard to achieve that. But John Owen helpfully encourages encourages us. He says, if we worked as hard as we did to feed our lusts, shall we not just as hard in beholding that which transforms our minds into Christ-likeness so that the eyes of our understanding shall be continually filled with his glory? Should we not work just as hard to put on the new self? And so that's really the application for, for today. It's put on the new self. Put off the old self. Do not ignore conscience. What is that area of your conscience that maybe you are ignoring? Actually, just ask yourself this. If, if you do find yourself unfeeling toward God, a helpful next question is, is there any area where I'm actively and willfully violating my conscience? But we're not going to go much more specific than that, than establishing that putting on and putting off, this is a paradigm for, for growing in Christ. But what are some specific ways to put on the new self? Next week, you'll find out. How about in, in our corporate life together? Stick around for the rest of Ephesians. How about uh, in our marriages? Stick around for the rest of Ephesians. How about in our parenting? Maybe that, that's a great one. Stick around for the rest of Ephesians. What about in, in spiritual warfare? Stick around for the rest of Ephesians. So we have the general paradigm here, and the charge to each of us is to live out the life that Christ has formed in you. Put off the old man. Put on the new man in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Thank you for not just giving us commands. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for giving us your Son who lives and intercedes for us at this very moment. Father, we don't worship We don't worship a Savior who was born into the world and who died never to rise again. 
we worship and we praise and we thank the eternally existent Son of God who was born into sinful humanity, who died our death, who was buried in the grave, who rose again for our resurrection and ascended on high where He reigns now, making perfect those who have trusted in Him. Lord, I pray that You would give us each the strength, the courage, the confidence to put off that old man and to actively put on the new identity that we have each become in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.